2: Hello.
1: Hey
3: Amy, you want to hear a scary podcast?
2: <laughs> Who is this?
3: The year is 1996. The movie is Scream. Oh, and it's it's just me, Paul. <laughs> everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best films of all time. And when we do, we are sending them into outer space. We are in the middle of a new miniseries, Cold, a cold miniseries, but we are kind of taking a slight detour this week to celebrate the release of Scream 5. We are going back to the first Scream. But before we get into that, In the last week, we have had the passing of two uh, major figures of cinema, Peter Bogdanovich and Sidney Poitier. We recently re-released our In the Heat of the Night episode and our last picture show episode where you, Amy, got to speak to Peter Bogdanovich. So if you've never listened to those episodes, they are in your stream right now. Check them out. They are, uh, they're actually great episodes too. I really like those two a lot.
1: It was really wonderful of Peter to come on this show. I still kind of can't get over it, honestly. That was wonderful of him to do that.
3: You know, it's so funny. I was thinking about Sidney Poitier, and obviously I've learned so much about him via this show and as I've gotten older, but my introduction to him was as an action star. Like there was a movie called Shoot to Kill with him and Tom Berenger. They were like hunting down a killer in the mountains. And I just thought Sidney Poitier was the coolest dude. I had no idea that he was this legendary film actor. I just thought he was just like a cool action star. It's like, man, him and Tom Berenger make a great team. I can't wait for the sequel of Shoot to Kill.
1: Wow, that's like if you saw Company Business with Gene Hackman and Mikhail Bershnikov, and you just thought Mikhail Bershnikov was a really funny action comedy star.
3: <laughs> By the way, Mikhail Bershnikov has a lot of like toes in the comedy action world. I mean, not only was he on Sex in the City, but he was in quite a few films in the 80s. And I actually share something with Mikhail Baryshnikov that you may not know. Uh, Flexibility? Uh, Yes, flexibility and a phone number. Uh, When I was in New York City, (laughs) my phone number was the same as Mikhail Baryshnikov's number. So I would have people calling my house all the time in Russian (laughs) asking for Mikhail Baryshnikov. They would leave messages from Mikhail Brishnikov. It never stopped until I changed my uh, that was when I had a landline in New York City. Uh, that number, it was <laughs> the most wild, random thing to have all these calls from Mikhail Brishnikov nonstop.
1: Oh, my God. I mean, we were getting the calls from the people that Mikhail Brishnikov wanted to avoid by not giving them his new number. You were getting the the calls from the people that he changed his number to get away from.
3: But maybe one of those phone calls is Nicholas Meyer trying to get another uh, one of those movies going. And uh, I shut it down. Him and Gene Hackman couldn't work together because I didn't connect a phone call.
1: (laughs) By the way, not that this is the company business podcast, but I just watched that movie for the first time very randomly. And then I, of course, texted you because I knew that was the sort of movie Gene Hackman, Mikhail Krishnikov, you know. Cold War spy thriller. I was like, obviously, Paul watched this 90 times on cable growing up. So I texted you about it. Yes. It's wonderful. And Nicholas Meyer also directed um, the best best Star Trek movie, Wrath of Khan. I thought, Nicholas Meyer, you know, we talk all the time about our Hitchcocks, but I like a working man's director who just like pops in, makes a great film, continues on with his career, making other great films. And he never put them together.
3: Yeah, I know. It's a very interesting... He has a very interesting career, and he's kind of popped up back up in the Star Trek world occasionally and uh, has always done interesting stuff. I'm a fan of Nicholas Meyer. Um, so, Amy, I know there was a little bit of uh, controversy this week regarding Scream 5. Your friend and mine, Jen Yamato, wrote a really interesting piece in the LA Times about Can you just talk a little bit about this? Because I feel like this got a little bit of traction, and it's at least worthwhile to talk about, I think, or just mention.
1: Yeah, uh, Jen wrote a piece in the L.A. Times talking about how Scream um, decided that it would only screen itself for critics in theaters, Um, which, you know, right now in a moment where we're suddenly not wanting to go to theaters again, at least for the next couple of weeks until this blows over. And I cannot wait until it does. It became kind of a crisis point for a lot of people. Like I didn't see the new screen because I'm kind of like, why would I go to a theater right now when I can just wait two weeks? And I think the numbers will be a lot lower. And so this opened up a whole conversation about like accessibility. The thing is a lot of film critics are older, you know, are kind of the people that have to protect their health. And for um, the studio to say Mm -hmm. like, no, this is a movie where we're drawing the line. We're not doing screening links anymore. It was tough. So yeah, a lot of critics were not able to see the film because of the timing of showing it in theaters only right now. But yeah. That's also how they're doing it for fans. That's their policy right now across the board.
3: It's an interesting point of view because I also understand that when you see something in a theater, especially a film like uh, scream, a horror film, a comedy film, there's a experience that you get in being in a room with a bunch of people. But I would argue that in a movie like scream or quiet place, those are movies that are also are improved by being home alone. You know, maybe not in front of a Ugh. computer screen. But last night when I was watching Scream, I got freaked out, especially in that opening scene. It's a movie I've seen dozens of times. But there is something about an at-home horror movie watch that I think can equal a theater experience. If, uh, if done correctly at night, lights off, you will get spooked. I, I agree.
1: Do. I agree. I mean, I love a horror movie in a crowd. And my dream, I guess, would have been that they waited, you know, two months to release Scream, and then we could all go see it in the theater the way that, like, it was intended. You know, people just, like, screaming in the aisles and being really freaked out. I love that feeling. I love it so much. But, yeah, watching a movie at home, especially when you're in the lights, especially when you become really aware of, like, your windows I'm a window person, like the idea of somebody oh, yeah. looking in my windows or staring at my windows, like, oh, it, it terrifies me. <laughs> you become aware of like the vulnerability of being in your house, especially in a movie that starts with a vulnerable house, a vulnerable girl in a
3: vulnerable house. Ah! Ah! Oh my gosh. Well, let's not even delay. Amy, let's unspool it. The year is 1996. One of the worst blizzards in American history hits the Eastern States killing more than 150 people. Lyle and Eric Menendez are found guilty of first-degree murder of their parents. Diana, Princess of Wales, drops 75 kilos when she divorces Princess Charles's ass. And the notable first of the year, Java programming language, DVDs, Ask Jeeves, Tickle Me Elmo, Nintendo 64, and Internet Explorer 3. The hot films are Independence Day, Mission Impossible, Jerry Maguire, The Birdcage, And if those sound familiar, it's because it's also the same year that Fargo came out. And it is the year that Scream came out. So here we go, Amy. Who's in it? Who made it? What's it about? And what was on the radio?
1: Scream. It is directed by the one and only Wes Craven, the man who had jump scared horror films three times in three decades. We're talking the 70s with Last House on the Left. We're talking the 80s with Nightmare on Elm Street, which we did this fall. And now this, Scream. Directed by Wes and also being the first screenplay written by Kevin Williamson, the guy who would go on to make I Know What You Did Last Summer and also the TV shows Dawson Creek, Vampire Diaries. So Scream, therefore, I would say is like a merging of a titan of the past and the titan of the future going forth. Um, What is Scream about? Well, it is about a series of shocking stabbings by a movie-obsessed killer named ghostface that shake up the fictional woodsboro high school which is somewhere in california wine country um what ghostface does he starts with the psychological torture and murder of drew barrymore in the opening minutes the murder that shocked moviegoers around the world and then he moves his knifely attentions to high schooler sydney prescott who was already traumatized by her mother's rape and murder the year before now she's got to deal with this guy in a mask and kind of like a goofy polyester dress who's chasing her around with a knife and everybody is a suspect. The movie puts a little bit of doubt on her dad, on her boyfriend, Billy Loomis, who's played by Skeet Ulrich, on her principal, who's kind of like a weird, angry guy, who's played by Henry Winkler. The local cop is a little bit goofy. David Arquette, he's the kind of digby who's usually like the twist ending killer. And who knows, maybe even local newscaster Courtney Cox is into death for ratings. And then even the rest of her friends, like horror nerd Jamie Kennedy, her best friend Rose McGowan, her, and Rose McGowan's boyfriend Matthew Lillard, they don't really seem to take the murders that seriously. But this is a movie that takes the conventions of horror movies seriously and reveals them. Kind of like Penn and Tiller showing you how these movies are done. Take a listen.
4: Jesus Christ, you don't know the rules? have an aneurysm, why don't you? There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, number one, you can never have sex. Oh! Look, look, look. Big no-no, big no oh, oh, Sex equals yes. death, okay? Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. <laughs> no, the sin factor. It's a sin, it's an extension of number one. And number three, never, ever, ever under any circumstances say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. I'm getting another beer. You want one?
5: Yeah, sure. I'll be right
4: back. Oh! Oh!
5: You see, you push the laws and you end up dead. Okay, I'll see you in the kitchen with a knife.
1: Scream was released on December 20th, 1996 as Tactical Christmas Counterprogramming. They thought, you know what? Kids want to get out of their house and not be around their families on Christmas, and we will give them a reason to leave home. Uh, However, that opening weekend, it only ranked fourth. It made $6 million, and it was considered uh, a flop. You tried, it didn't work. But every week after that, the audience for Scream grew and grew and grew and grew. Word of mouth kicked in until it became a huge hit with a gazillion sequels. Now, what was in the zeitgeist as this word of mouth was turning Scream into a major hit? It was Tony Braxton. on the top of the charts with Unbreak My Heart. And if you have not seen the Unbreak My Heart video in a minute, it's kind of great. It's Toni Braxton in a house where she's like haunted by memories of her boyfriend who in the very opening scene like dies by running his motorcycle into a parked car. So she's in her house and she's crying in the shower and she's like thinking about their memories of like when she shaped his face and when they played Twister. And then there's like this ending that comes straight out of A Star Is Born where she sings about his death in front of like this whole room full of people like wearing this iconic white like tom ford gucci dress with like this cutout and a gold band i say this because this was a really pivotal moment in fashion is even referenced at the end of house of gucci had to say that um which by
3: the way is great it is i love house of gucci it's like a ryan murphy movie i don't know i'm like i'm all in i'm in it's campy it's funny it's wild i did not think i wanted to see it i loved it
1: i had so much fun i had so much fun jared leto is hilarious in that
3: Everyone, here's the thing. If you want to know anything about House of Gucci, let me just tell you this. Jeremy Irons plays Italian. And then that should just set the bar for the rest of the film and go for it. Like he's (laughs) picked the most distinctive voiced people to all play the most Italian people. They can never pull it off. No matter what Al Pacino does, he is not going to not sound like Al Pacino. He's not going to sound like it. I mean, even though Al Pacino is Italian, he arguably sounds not Italian.
1: Thank you for being on the Gucci squad. And to me, this Tony Braxton video was kind of the beginning of me even knowing what Gucci was. because I was like, what is that dress? It was like when Tom Ford came out with those velvet suits. Do you remember that moment? Oh, yeah. We had those like velvet suits and Madonna wore one. It was like this tuxedo. Oh, a dream, a dream. Uh, But anyways, so we've got this Tony Braxton video and you're asking, you know, so like grief and heartbreak and death houses aside, what connection is there between Tony Braxton and murder? Well, there was not one until this year Tony Braxton has taken kind of like an about career phase turn, and she is producing and starring in a lifetime movie called The Fallen Angels Book Club, where from what I gather, she plays an ex-con who investigates the murders. So good for you, Tony. Well, I'm glad she has some murder back in her life.
3: You know, Amy, this movie really hits me in a sweet spot. I was deathly afraid of horror films growing up. Like I saw Freddie and it freaked me out. And then I went and, you know, I would kind of dip a toe into a scary movie every now and then, but this movie really caught me at a time where I fell in love with horror movies, and I think it reinvented the horror genre in many ways, and this was my way in, and I've gone backwards since, but I know what you did last summer, Disturbing Behavior, all these movies were like right in my wheelhouse at a perfect time when I was in high school, it was great.
1: You know, I am with you. I, th- I had this exact same experience because I think when I was a really young kid, I was coming of age in the era where it was just like endless reboots of Jason movies, mm-hmm. which all just seemed like lame and had like chicks with tits getting stabbed. And it seemed like adult and bad. Like to me, when I was growing up, horror movie and bad were kind of synonymous. Right. Because we had this like great, great slasher movement that like Wes Craven you know, didn't create because he was the last one at the gate. Like Michael Myers came first and then it was Jason and then it was Freddy. But Wes Craven, you know, kind of emblemized. Like I I would say Freddy is like the greatest of those slasher killers. And yet he like started this whole kind of monstrosity of like sequels that he didn't want to take a part in. He was trying to destruct what horror had become. Like horror had just become bad. You said horror, it meant bad. And like he... And he was done with horror. Like he made that film, um, Wes Craven's new nightmare that like, we talked about this on our nightmare on Elm street uh, episode where he tried to like take apart what horror movies were, what they had become, what he thought the problems were with them and, and really like break it all down and kind of show us how it worked in that film to me is wonderful, but didn't really take off.
3: It just seemed a little bit ahead of its time. And maybe I think it was a little bit too navel gazy in the sense that, You had to get people through the door with a knowledge of Freddy, whereas this film kind of sets the table in a very clean way, right? It feels fresh. It feels new. So I think it brings in a newer audience. And I don't think that that movie could have ever have worked, even though it was perfect in the sense of, oh, we're going to take it from the inside. I think Scream has kind of done that as it continues to go on. And I think uh, I haven't seen Scream 5, but it seems like that's also part of this, too. but. I think to bring in a new audience you needed to kind of have brand new characters and a new killer to do that deconstruction that he wanted to do.
1: You're exactly right. And that's exactly what he did, right? I mean, he yeah. brought in a new audience. He made me think that scary movies were funny because I did it. I like my opinion of it was kind of like what Sydney Prescott says here when she gets her phone call from from Ghostface.
4: Do you like scary
0: movies, Sydney? I like that thing you're doing with your voice, Randy. It's sexy. What's your scary movie oh come on you know i don't watch that shit why not
4: too scared
0: no no it's just what's the point they're all the same some stupid killer stalking some big-breasted girl who can't act who's always running up the stairs when she should be going out the front door it's insulting
1: her opinion there was i would say the opinion of me and most of my friends until scream until Ghostface.
3: well i love that scene and this whole movie is full of these scenes that comment on the genre, the genre, which was, like you said, just languishing. It was a glut of horror films. No longer were you finding, you know, the next big actor to come out of a horror film. It was just sort of these open on a Friday. If it worked, great. If it didn't, who cared? It was it was just in the background, really in the background. There were so many movies that lined the shelves of Blockbuster. And I think this movie does a great job of just, encapsulating that attitude towards her. Like, yes, there are some big horror fans like Jamie Kennedy represents in the movie, but for most people, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, that Wes Carpenter movie. It's like, yeah, I know a little bit, but it's even what I know is kind of slightly screwed. And I love that Wes Craven was open enough to get that and then also subvert it because you look at this opening scene with Drew Barrymore, and Drew Barrymore is a huge star at this point. And you think from the poster, like this is going to be a Drew Barrymore movie. Like you have to remember that too. Like what most people, when they saw this movie thought, oh, it's a horror movie starring Drew Barrymore. That, that's kind of cool. It elevates it on some level.
1: I mean, yeah. Like if you look at the poster of Scream, like Drew is the biggest face on the cover. You know, she's the biggest face. She's on the left side. Like Skeet, I would say, is like the second biggest face. Right. Andrew is also like that, you know, like the black and white, scream face like the big eyeballs and the knife
3: thing the peanut face
1: yeah that actually is drew i didn't think that was drew i thought that was just like anonymous pretty girl face but that is actually drew barrymore as well so her face is on the poster twice yeah i didn't believe that until i saw the original photo and i saw how they like kind of shifted the angle it those are drew barrymore's eyes no idea those are drew barrymore's eyes but yeah so she's on this poster twice and you know this is like america's little sister she's been doing i would say kind of like a string of like Little girl, all grown up movies, you know, where she's like in bikinis and seducing people like the kind of she had that 90s bad girl image that was going up until this
3: time. This is before like Charlie's Angels, The Wedding Singer, Never Been Kissed, you know, like this is at an interesting point. It truly is because that Drew Renaissance, which I think really starts with uh, The Wedding Singer. Yeah. You know, is a different Drew Barrymore.
1: Oh, yeah. I would say it starts here, here. Yeah. because this is where Drew Barrymore plays a normal teenage girl, which she wasn't doing. You know, she was playing Bad Girls, and here it's like Drew Barrymore in kind of like a dumpy white sweater, a sort of dumpy not white Not she looks
3: amazing in it. She like, looks, I mean,
1: well, she, yeah. yeah. She looks amazing, but the producers were like, she's not sexy enough in this costume, should we make her sexier? And Wes Graham was like, no. And he dressed her like a normal teenage girl, and then she's very sweet, and it's it reminds you that you, like, love Drew Barrymore, right? You yes. love Drew Barrymore in this opening scene. You like scary movies?
4: Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. What comes to mind? Um, Halloween.
1: You know, the one with the guy in the white mask who walks around and stalks babysitters? Yeah. What's yours?
4: Yes.
0: Um, Nightmare on Elm Street.
4: Is that the one where the guy had knives for fingers? Yeah,
0: Freddy Krueger.
4: Freddy, that's right. I like that movie. It was scary.
1: Well, the first one was, but the rest sucked.
4: So, you got a boyfriend? (laughs) Why? You want to ask me out on a date? Maybe. Do you have a boyfriend? Um, No. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? Because I want to know who I'm looking at.
3: I mean, this scene is 12 minutes long, and it is perfection. Like, Wes Craven is like, oh, I know how to do this so well. It's funny. It's scary. And for the first time, I think what you're seeing is a character who is smart and strong. Because she's not super self-aware, right? Like, uh, the rest of the film, they seem to have an awareness of horror films, are playing into that. But she just simply is a strong female lead. Like she fights back, she makes the right choices. We talked about this in Fargo too. She's doing the things that the people in the movie theater might be screaming to do if Yeah. you were watching it live. And I think that that She
1: literally kicks Ghostface in the balls. She yes. punches him, she kicks him in the balls. I mean, this it this the movie basically opens with like the Final Girl fight. You know, up until this point, like horror movies would be like, all these bimbos get murdered. That's, you know, sort of the attitude of them. Uh, And then like the one tough girl who's a little bit modestly dressed actually kicks the killer and punches him and like wins. And here, Drew Barrymore does all of that. She is that final girl. And you are when you're going into this movie in 1986, you're like, oh, my God, Drew's going to have this like really narrow escape. Oh, wow. I can't believe this is how the movie opens. And and she dies. She The final girl dies at the beginning of the movie, who was the biggest star that you thought was going to be the star of the movie. I mean, to me, this is like the 90s version of the Psycho Twist,
3: right? Yeah. And I think what I love about this film and what I think is so smart about it is it sets the stakes so high right away, right? This movie is incredibly funny. It's super enjoyable to watch. But that first scene is legit scary. I would say it's the scariest scene of the entire film. And I think that that scene allows the rest of the film to have these meta qualities because we know that the danger is real, right? And we also believe in her and this world as a real world. Like, this is a world in which you can fight back, you can kick somebody in the balls, you can try to escape, you can have minor victories. Like, they're not just dumb horror movie characters. And I think this is, to Kevin Williamson's script, like, something that was such a great way to set this movie off because there's the immediate comparison you can make to like a scary movie. Like if you wanted to make like not a scary movie, like adjective scary movie, like a scary movie, like a, like a Wayne's brother scary movie. Like there's an immediate way you could go about it if you wanted to deconstruct horror, but this movie does it so much better by living in the horror world and deconstructing it at the same time. Well,
1: yeah. I mean, when the Wayne's brothers make fun of the scene in a scary movie, they have it be Carmen Electra. And then when they stab her, they like stab out her breast implant. And it is that like return to like women are just like lame carnage that I I hate, that I hate. And I feel like Wes Craven in here is saying, All of you people have fucked up the beauty that I created with something like Nightmare on Elm Street. Like Nightmare on Elm Street doesn't do that either. Nightmare on Elm Street is not mean to women. Nightmare on Elm Street like respects its lead characters, Mm -hmm. makes her like a real human being. And he's like, all of you took my genre and destroyed it. I can't believe you did that. Let me remind you what it should be, which is you make a horror film starring people that you care about. You let them be strong and vulnerable and funny. She flirts with Ghostface. He's kind of flirting with her. You, like, have her try so hard to do the right thing. You, If you don't make the audience care about the victim, what are we even doing here? Well, and that's what this scene is about to me.
3: Uh, you know, and I'll just go a step further, and we'll get into it throughout the whole discussion, but one of the things that makes this movie so good is the casting and all the characters. They all pop. I mean, you know, uh Matthew Lillard is phenomenal in this movie. Rewatching oh, it, that was I one that really him. popped off to me. I was like, wow, he's so good. Just playing this kind of... Right in the pocket, mid-90s dude bro. I walked away being most impressed with him on this rewatch just because, like, wow, he's doing so many things and so many things are, like, subtle and small but specific. And apparently he improvised a lot of that too.
1: Oh, yeah. but, he's, like, my favorite. The way, like, his character takes up so much physical space from other people. Like, yeah. he, like, like Matthew Litter in this movie is, like, leaning over Jamie Kennedy and just playing with his earlobe just because he can. Like, yeah. you don't know that he's the killer. And, you know he is hello he's one of the two one of the we're just two. gonna say it now uh you don't know that but when you re-watch it you see how he's a person with absolutely no respect for anybody's physical autonomy he's always picking up rose mcgowan he's always like grabbing people tickling people leaning on people he is a guy that does not respect boundaries with other people and, and yeah. i think that that is really funny how it creeps up on you
3: That moment where Drew Barrymore is about to get killed and Ghostface or Peanut Face is chasing her down, we don't know who the killer is at this point, right? But I believe the killer acts like a high school kid. And when you watch it knowing that, like there's a clumsiness to the killer, like grabbing her and trying to figure out where to stab her. It's not like, you know, back in the day, of uh the jason movies it's just sort of like a stab yeah. in the back stab, grah, you know, and, grah, yeah he just goes yeah he it's and butchery it, it's butchery. Yeah. yeah and here like he is trying to find an angle like there is a sloppiness throughout the whole film of someone who is of their age right this is not an adult man this is not a superhuman person this is a person who makes mistakes and yes. He like
1: yeah. people throw beer bottles at him. He's he's always getting stuck in doors. Yeah, he's like very clumsy. I love that about Ghostface. But it's when he also like when he's like creepy in the bathroom, in and he, like yeah, when he like is stalking um when he's stalking Sydney in the bathroom at her high school. What I love is like he climbs down from the toilet and then he has to adjust his like polyester yeah. fringe dress. He has to like adjust it because he's like oh I gotta get this right. Oh, Whatever, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But, but he's. I mean- you yeah. can he tell he's he, that he's not like a psychotronic killer. No, he's not just like robot stab, stab, stab.
3: And I think that that's what makes the the movie really engaging as well. Because that first kill, besides the boyfriend who whose guts are just ripped out in a way that I don't even understand how that happens, but who cares? It's like I don't know if they ran by him with a chainsaw real quick. It it seems almost impossible to have created that much carnage so quickly. But I'm not going to get into that. And I'm just and even Drew Barrymore hanging in a tree also seems like there's a lot of work that needed to be done, but I don't care about that. Uh, but I think the idea is that first kill is clumsy and it is messy and it exists a lot longer. And I think a lot of the kills in these movies, for the most part, have that element of being a little bit more soppy, a little bit more real, a little bit more grounded than what we've seen in the past. Right? We normally are used to seeing like, all right. Someone's chasing them. They fall down. They get up. But a lot of the, a lot of the things that we see are: I'm falling, not I get stabbed and I keep on running. I'm dying and I'm screaming for my parents. And the way that they kind of frame that whole scene by having Drew Paramore's parents come back, in like yeah. she is feet away, feet away from foiling this or or surviving, and that to me. Is such an like what a way to heighten the stakes of this movie? I mean, wow! That like that that scene of her just can't she can't breathe and she's trying to scream for her parents who are just right there and they miss the entire thing. I mean, that's so frightening.
4: Jesus!
1: Yeah, her weak way of saying "mom," where she's like. Dying and calling out for her parents. I mean, that is, I think, as tragic as I've almost ever seen a horror movie go,
3: you know, like well, you this care. is it, right you in care. that moment. What you talked yeah. about, like that, that idea of like you want, like in that moment, I she's a person, you yeah. know, and, and and I think she's of
1: America's little sister from E.T. Yeah. crying For her mom. She's. Yeah. yeah it's extra awful. And then, and then what he does that I think is like so smart is like right at the very end, you know, he flips her over. We see that she's just too tired to fight anymore. And that is awful. Like seeing the, the giving up right. on her face. She can't breathe. Fighting.
3: Like, I feel like his, her lung has been punctured. Like that's yeah. what I'm, that's what I'm buying in that scene. And, and he's so vulnerable,
1: but like the last thing that she manages to do is rip off his mask and we see her
3: see who it is. And I love that too, because it gives her a victory, even though she dies, right? Like she at least solved the mystery of her own death. You know, she wasn't, you know, like in some way, not that it gave her peace, but it's like, I do think that that is a way to show her win and lose at the same time.
1: It's true. And then it sets us up for us to wonder the whole time, like, who is this killer going to be? Who is this person who on the phone with her says that, you know what? His favorite movie is the first Nightmare on Elm Street, is Wes Craven's movie, but all the other ones suck. He gets in
3: a little dig at all of the imitators right at the beginning, which I think is so funny. By the way, also just a tremendous amount of restraint, and we'll probably talk about the script a bunch, but she didn't rip off his face and go, you? Why? You know, there's no, like, it's just a look. Like, we don't know how well she knows this person. And, you know, really, we truly don't even know who it was. Is that Matthew Lillard? Is that Skeet? We don't, like, you know, it's Like they're kind yeah, of... Yeah, who do you think it was? I think they're working in tandem at any given point because I feel like one's on the phone, the other one's stabbing the boyfriend, one's helping. Like, they, I think they're working in tandem. I mean, you know, I would love to see that movie too. Like, what was the orchestration? Because clearly, like, I think Matthew Lillard is chasing after Nev Campbell in the house, but then when she traps him, you know, Skeet is able to jump through the window. Like, there's a little bit of... This, you know, it makes the movie great as far as red herrings are concerned because it does allow you to kind of consistently question your own thought process, which is, I think, uh, you know, I think the way that Wes Craven kind of ups the ante because not only does he create all these great characters, the amount of people it could be is so much higher than a normal horror movie. Like that end sequence, like that whole party sequence where the carnage is starting to happen you could go back and forth like five times with realistic ideas of who the killer might be. Like there's that moment where you think it might be Dewey, uh, you know, David Arquette, and you're like, "Oh, I would buy it." Like I would. Oh, now here's the reveal, and and he's such a great filmmaker in letting you buy each one for a couple of seconds, even to the last, you know, until the last final reveal uh, that it's the two of them.
1: Okay, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. For so long, I have just assumed that the first kill was only Skeet Ulrich. Mm-hmm. Because the next day at school, Matthew Lillard is like talking about it with everybody, you know, and he, yeah. and Rose McGowan is like, no, he was with me last night. It's like when but they're so having that Skeet. whole.
3: Skeet was with Nev.
1: Oh, that's true. He does show
3: up at the they end. both That's their alibis. They both went to their girlfriend's house right after so they could say, oh, I was with them.
1: Ah, so that's why he breaks into her window, not just to give yeah. her a lecture about how their mm-hmm. relationship has become too like. Mm-hmm pg-13 rated right it's so that she knows where he was ah i mean what i think is so interesting about that whole conversation though that they're having you know where they're like going back and forth and talking about it is just how callous they sound like this is a girl from their school that just died i kind of
3: love it i love it because i was like this is actually really you know this is kind of pre-columbine too and i feel like this the story of this is more exciting to the kids and didn't feel like they're best friends with Drew Barrymore. They're talking about it. And there's like a jokiness to it that is, oh, yeah, I knew that girl. Oh, I saw that girl. Very much like the way that Heathers kind of plays off that, you know, when people started to die. Like, oh, you know, there's, oh, I knew her. I'm this. I'm that. You know, there's there's an element to it where. I think that kids are also not emotionally fully formed so you can have those moments if you had a bunch of adults sitting like that it would feel a little bit more callous but it's this kids talking and they're going dark and you buy them looking at this person and having fun with it and you don't think of them as the shittiest people in the world they're just kind of like oh this is so far-fetched from my life and it's so weird obviously though nev campbell is coming from this world in which her mom was raped and killed. Which is also a right. she's like you know. the only one who knows what death really is, and Rose McGowan makes a moment of that, makes this moment where they're talking about how brutal it was, and then she catches herself like, oh, I can't have this conversation with her because she's like, oh, it's as bad as uh, it was as bad, you know, and you're like, oh, it's because it was as bad as how they found her mother, you know. So I think there is this sympathy there to her, but also they're just like kind of callous kids that are just like fucking around. And, you know, and just having fun.
1: It's true. I mean, like, there is that bit where, um, where the principal, where Henry Will- Winkler is like, your generation makes me sick.
4: You make me so sick. Your entire havoc-inducing, thieving, whoring generation disgusts me. So, two of your fellow students just savagely murdered. And this is the way that you show your compassion and sensitivity, huh? Let me show you something. You're both expelled. Get yeah. oh, Come on, Mr. himbry It was just a joke. That's not fair. You're absolutely right. It is not fair. Fairness would be to rip your insides out, hang you from a tree so we can expose you for the heartless, desensitized little shits that you are.
1: And that scene makes me wonder if they're, if they're trying to do any sort of commentary on, like, do they think 90s kids have gotten too disengaged? But I don't... Feel like that's it. Maybe every generation just thinks like the younger generation is
3: disengaged. No, I, I think I think there's something interesting about this movie. It comments on everything, right? I think it comments on every part of the genre, the way it affects people. Um, but you would definitely have copycats if there's a mask like that. You know, like there are these insensitive people that are running around. I think Henry Winkler is so great in this and it kind of captures like the perfect like Knowing Henry Winkler, that's Henry Winkler, the sweetest, nicest guy. And he plays this principal. I don't know why they have to kill the principal, but they play him and he's so worried about the kids. And you want those lectures and you want these comments on on the genre of the time, because even with the PG-13 and R rating of their relationship, like I love how cheeky that is cheeky, uh, where like Nev's like, hey, want to have a PG-13 relationship and then does like a flash of her breast, But we don't even see it like there are these. I think commentaries on on the state of it's a perfect 1996 time capsule, I think, you know, and and we're kind of a little bit more innocent in that moment. Like I said, pre Columbine, I think you could have this. I don't think you could have a movie with the kids being this disengaged or this uh, like having fun with it after Columbine. I just think it becomes a little bit more like, oh, that doesn't sit as well with me.
1: That's true. I mean, maybe we've talked about this in an earlier episode, but I always feel like columbine is the divider between gen x and the millennials Mm. right like because i feel like if you were in school post columbine you had a different high school experience than anybody who was just before and scream is just before like scream is like the very end youngest youngest i guess generation of like gen x and then like after this by the time you get to like i know what you did last summer that is millennial
3: right right Yeah, but like, Um, but but
1: I don't know. To me, like, Columbine is that dividing line of like, high school is a time for like romping around and having fun and being goofy, and like, nerds are nerds. in a way that I think is like, like, also not very healthy. You know that like nerds are there to be bullied the way that they were in like a lot of '80s movies Mm -hmm. and early '90s films. And then Columbine. But Jamie Kennedy
3: is also interesting in this movie because he's like the nerd, right? But he fits in with the group. Like, I think that they have a social structure there, but he's not he's picked on by these guys who, like you said, are in his personal space, but it does start to show a little bit more of a uh, three-dimensional type of characterization. Like, he's a movie nerd, but he's still hanging out with them. He's running the movie night. Like, he's, like he has quirks. He may yeah. not be the coolest, but he's hanging out with them. It's not like, I just feel like this movie does a good job of, of kind of deconstructing tropes and kind of showing more of a, a regular kind of a hangout group.
1: Yeah, this movie's like Jamie Kennedy is probably not gonna get to date Nev Campbell. Maybe. But Jamie Kennedy is not like the biggest loser in the school.
3: There right, he's not, you and know. they
1: don't seem it doesn't seem like these kids hang out with the biggest losers in the
3: school. Nor do they say they that they're, they're the them. most popular kids either. Like they just seem like a group of kids. And yeah, I think that that's they're really like, interesting. what like yeah.
1: the A minus B plus kids. Yeah. I, B I mean plus kids. Just- a-minus kids. They're just, I think B-plus they're just, kids.
3: yeah, they're B-plus kids. They don't, they're not like the the star of the football team. They're not the, you know, uh, Nev Campbell isn't the outcast loner. I will say. In I would say of, that Drew Barrymore might be the A-kid. I agree. I totally like, agree. That's like, why I my, think, my
1: boyfriend's big and he plays football and he'll kick yeah. the shit out of you. That's A-behavior.
3: Yes. And that seems to be the more realistic or the, the normal person that would be the focus of a, a movie like this. I will say that, um, you know, there's something interesting about all these characters because they are very well defined. I think that Nev Campbell's character is the least defined, knowing that Kevin Williamson wrote this as a trilogy or had the, an idea to arc her out over three films, two that he got to do and the third he was replaced with. And I think that it didn't fully flesh out. But the second one definitely, I think, Allows her to have more of a personality. Here, her personality is just simply my mom was raped and killed. Like, I mean, yeah. they, you know, and and that doesn't mean that she's not a strong or interesting character, but she is the least defined. I don't know much about what does she like, what does she do, you know. In, in the second film, like, oh, she's in acting or she's doing this. She, it's much more of a story of a survivor, which I think which they do with like Laurie Strode and and Halloween, or they eventually start to do, but. It's interesting that she's surrounded by such strong characters and she is, I would argue, the least funny and the least defined. But also at the same time, she's not dumb. She's aware of that first scene that you played where she's on the phone with uh, Ghostface and she like walks outside the door. She's more of an audience conduit in a way. Like Maybe she's blank for us to feel that we are her.
1: I can see that. I mean, she is, however, at least... Funny, maybe she's not the funniest, but like she seems to laugh and have like a sense of humor. She laughs at other people's jokes. I think what I'm saying is like, I feel like a lot of sad characters with tragic past in movies Mm -hmm. just come into the movie like a gloom, gloom, and their whole life is mope, 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 and they're sad, and like the actors never allowed to smile because like a bad thing happened to them. Right. And I appreciate that like Neb here is allowed to be ordinary teenager who gets this kind of like tragic look in her face when she thinks about her past and then like keeps trying to shake it off.
3: Like Absolutely. He, like
1: gloom, gloom is not her life.
3: No. And, and, I, I, and I, yeah.
1: Yeah. And I just, and I love that because I, I feel like that, I feel like tragedy gets telegraphed too heavily.
3: A hundred percent. And this movie wouldn't be fun if she was like that. And like I said, she's making those jokes about the PG 13 rating. I think that her decision to have sex with Skeet at the end also is handled in this like really Interesting, cool way where it's not exploitative. She's very much in control of like wanting to make that decision, doesn't feel pressured into it. Like he there's asks a lot of her
1: several times for consent in that thing. Like, yeah. do you want to? Yeah. Yeah. And then she was like, well, yeah, I think so. But it's, it is yes, she he asks, she says yes.
3: It's a really interesting thing. And you you mentioned this term, and I, I went deep last night into this. And I, you know, not to fully just go down this path, but I want to talk about this idea of the final girl. Now, I always thought the final girl was some, some term that like, you know, like Kevin Smith made up or something like that. I did not realize that it was this professor, uh, Carol J. Clover. She wrote this book called Men, Women and Chainsaws and came up with this idea of the final girl and really did this amazing look at like what gender means in these films And it was really, it really was fascinating. I want to, I want to read more about it, but I just wanted to kind of talk about it. Do you know anything about this? Have you ever heard this or? Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I read that book in college. It's really like a touchdown. I can't recommend it enough for people curious about like getting into the psychology of horror. I mean, that book is probably the book that made me get into horror because yeah, I like Scream and I started to like be open to scary movies after Scream, but reading men women and chainsaws is the book that got me thinking about horror like on a deeper level and and yeah it's brilliant i mean that is the book that talks about how in in like serial killer movies like this people don't die by getting shot they get they die by getting penetrated you know knives chainsaws ice picks like daggers those are the weapons that a serial killer uses in scary movies because it is all about like In essence, like dicks going into women is kind of her reading of it. And and it's like the virgin at the end is the one who escapes getting killed by the dick knife.
3: Well, and but also
1: that is like the dumb version of the book, but but that is like kind of her argument.
3: But I think it's really interesting because even with Craven makes the point that the reason why that girl is a virgin isn't about virginity equals godliness. It's like the pent-up frustration of not having sex allows the rage to kill this other person. You know, and and I just I, I wanted yeah, to Yeah, and the more. idea
1: that she's not distracted. That yeah. like she's not off like having sex in the corner or like thinking about her boyfriend too much. She's like the one who's able to be more aware because she has less like guy nonsense happening in her life.
3: Yeah. And I think there's something interesting here too. Like, you know, horror films are I guess predominantly a male driven audience as far as uh you know the box office and she makes this point and you can please correct me in this i'm i'm kind of just reading a bunch of different sources she makes a point of saying that like what's interesting that in a in films that are made for men that a female is the lead character like why do they identify with them and and she talks about this idea of like this gender fluidity, which is like we are presented with a character who is coded as a female, right? And she spends a majority of the movie doing all the things that are the traditional, you know, uh, feminine role, you know, running, uh, you know, the screaming. And then in the later stages, this female character picks up this phallic instrument, you know, some version thereof, and uses it to take down the monster. You know, the woman adopts the practice of vengeance or the, you know, the just, you know, bringing violence to this person, which is reserved for a male figure. And it's, it's really interesting because it basically, in her mind, uh, puts men in the position of feeling sympathy for a woman's pain um, as she vanquishes a traditionally male uh, killer. You know, it's a really like interesting idea of like how this idea works in, you know, and, and, and what it does with, you know, coding different gender roles. And I never really thought about it like this. I thought it was incredibly fascinating.
1: It's fascinating. I mean, like right now, I feel like we're still in the throes of that. Like, will men ever go to see movies starring strong female characters talk? You know, and when you look at horror, then the truth is they kind of have the whole time. There's just like so many dumb female characters around her that you don't think about it necessarily you know, to bring it back to Bob Clark, the guy who made to me the best Christmas movie, a Christmas story. We, I think briefly right. mentioned that he made a film called a uh, black Christmas. And that yes. was like a slasher film that came out before Halloween. Cause Halloween really is the movie that like sets all these tropes in stone. There's a reason why at scream at the slumber party, uh, they're watching Halloween and not anything else, but pre Halloween, he makes black Christmas and like, In that movie, the heroine, the person who like, you know, survives to the end is a girl who not only has lots of sex, she's like pregnant and needs to get an abortion. And that was one template of like what the final girl could have been. She could have been a girl who had sex. There's no reason why she couldn't have been. It's just then like Jamie Lee is in Halloween and Jamie Lee felt like producers didn't think she was that sexy and they never asked her to take off her clothes and they never gave her any love scenes. And like, it kind of just happened by default that those are the characters they gave to Jamie Lee. And then it became a trope. And then everybody kept imitating the Jamie Lee heroine because not only did she make Halloween right after Halloween, she made a bunch of like horror films right in a row because she was willing to do them. She did like prom night and terror train. She doesn't have sex in any of those movies. Mm. Well, as as Jamie Kennedy says here, she doesn't show her tits until she goes legit. Nobody right. asked her to Katie because places, they didn't. Yeah. yeah, they didn't think she was as sexy. All the air quotes around that as like the women who were getting stabbed in those movies. So, they, so the producers just like, yeah, it doesn't matter. She can keep her top on. So it's just weird. I just love tracing back how tropes get formed sometimes by accident. Right. Like nobody is thinking knife is a penis and yet somehow on a visceral level, like that is the pull that draws people there, even though nobody's really articulating it, well, but even it though is, nobody's conscious
3: of it. And, and I think what you're saying, too, is this idea that, you know, we treat rom-coms as films that are traditionally for female audience because as female lead characters. But these films, the successful ones, are often female fronted films. And it is... It is just a perspective that probably no one's looking at. They're just they're chasing success, but not examining why that success is there. And this movie does a great job, again, of paying homage to all of these types of tropes and commenting on them, even in showing like Sydney's nemesis is another woman who is presented as like, excuse, like the quick terminology, like a bitch, you know, and that's Courtney Cox, but she's not. She actually is someone who is fighting for the life of an innocent person. And I understand how she could be callous and she wants her stories. But at the root of Courtney Cox, she is a good person who might have her ways of doing things. But she's not William Atherton and Die Hard. She's not, you know, she's not trying to, like, run a story to get. Um, I mean, yes, she wants to sell her book and all this sort of stuff. But there is. a a true sense of wanting to do good there too
1: i am glad you said that because that was one of my takeaways this watch too i'm like gail is right i mean gail is right she has that scene where she's like talking to sydney about like her theories about what's going on with the case she's right
0: do you still think he's innocent your testimony put him away it doesn't really matter what i think during the trial you did all those stories about me you call me a liar i think you falsely identified him yes have you talked to cotton many times and has his story changed not one word he admits to having sex with your mother but that's all he's lying she never would have touched him he raped her and then he butchered her her blood was all over his coat he was drunk that night he left his coat at your house after your mother seduced him i saw him leave wearing it no you saw someone leave wearing that coat The same someone who planted it in Cotton's car, framing him. No. Cotton murdered my mother. You're not so sure anymore, are you? Think
1: about it. Gail is like, there's an innocent man who's in jail. Uh, You did testify and point the finger at him. I think he should be set free. Maybe it is because we're more conscious about, like, the number of, like, people who are on death row for crimes they didn't commit and like the gail is able to pop out more as like yes yes gail is on the side of good but gail i think she's doing her job very well to be yeah. honest like I, I, maybe, maybe i'm just old enough that now i'm like the working woman with a career that she's serious about good for her
3: good for you gail i mean and they make and i think what they do with her is they make her very aggressive, right? Like, Courtney Cox wants to do this movie because she wants to shed the image that she's gotten from friends. So she really chases after this role to do it. Uh, Jeannie Garofalo turns it down, and Courtney Cox kind of gets in there to do this role. And there are some really funny lines. I mean, when she tells her cameraman that he's 50 pounds overweight, like, this man does not look even 50 pounds overweight. Like, I also love that. Like, it also just... Instead of again just going to like the same old trope of like a big dopey fat guy, whatever like, oh, I can't move. Like the guy is just he fi- he's fine. I mean, maybe a couple, like, but like to just be like that cutting to him, and he's not even that that kind of stereotypical look that you would assume. I just love that. It's funnier than calling someone a name for what they are. When I don't know, I don't know why I'm breaking this down that more than that, but it just made me laugh really hard.
1: <laughs> I mean, she's mean, but. I respect her. Yeah. Honestly, I feel like Janine Garofalo would have been all wrong because maybe like why Gail feels like the villain here is that kind of Gen X emotions that we're talking about. That kind of Gen X like zeitgeist feeling where the stereotype was that like careerist ambitious people were probably bad and suspect. Like Janine Garofalo could not play this newscaster with any sort of level of ambition. Could she? I can't. I mean, Janine Jean Garofalo is like no, the queen I of th- I don't want to fold sweaters,
3: like correctly. But I think what you're saying is there's an element to the way that this character is positioned with Courtney Cox there, which is she's wearing a costume too, right? She knows that for her show, she's got to act and be a certain way, that outfit, the way she is. It doesn't mean that she's a bad person. The fact that she connects with Dewey, like the, the dumbest, you know, of them all. And and finds like a sweet, like truly real connection with this guy speaks to who she is off camera. But she's also wearing a mask like right. She's but she's doing it for her job. I think with Jeannie Garofalo, you might just think, oh, she's exactly right. Like she's fighting for the right thing. Does that make sense?
1: No, it does. It does. Like there's that little bit where, you know, where you really get to see like the Courtney Cox, David Arquette chemistry, like come forth, you know, Mm -hmm. them being a couple who like fell in love during the making of this movie like they they i don't think they started dating until it was over but they were just like fascinated by each other their chemistry i think is so obvious on screen and i really love that like yes she's kind of like wrapping him around her little finger and like fake flirting with him and looking a little bit exhausted when he turns away and like oh i can't believe i have to keep flirting with this like dumb dumb cop guy who was written to be more of like handsome action cop And then David Arquette was like, can I make him, can I do the role? And can I play him as kind of like goofy slacker cop? Yeah, he was supposed to be a lot more cardboard. And I think like the casting of David Arquette, which David Arquette convinced them to do.
3: I think everybody in this movie brings so much of themselves to these characters. And maybe that's what elevates just like a comedy. You want people to be able to improvise and make some choices here, giving every actor a little bit of autonomy to create, more of a fully fleshed out performance, I think makes the movie to your point earlier, like you care about them. And as a result, they become three dimensional characters. And then when they do connect a little bit, you kind of buy it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And like, to your point about, you know, this Gail Weathers character feeling like she's in a costume or having to put on a costume. She has that scene where, where he's talking about how his life was cursed basically by being named Dewey. And she's like, My name is also a put on. Like I was given this name and what other choice did I have except to be this kind of a human being?
4: No, it's Dwight. Dwight? I'm sorry. It's alright. Dewey's just something I got stuck with a long time ago. Well,
2: I like it.
4: Sexy.
0: Sexy?
4: Uh, It's just this town's way of not taking me serious.
0: What about Gail Weathers? Sounds like I'm a meteorologist or something. People treat me like I'm the antichrist of television journalism.
4: I don't think you're that bad.
0: No? no. I think that's just because you kind of like me.
3: I'd argue she should have been a a weather forecaster. But she doesn't
1: want to be. You can hear it in her voice. Course, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, but I know.
3: Yeah. I think that would sound dumb. Gale weathers with the weather. Too much. It's too oh, much. Oh, come on. Storm Fields was my guy growing up. And at least storm you don't say think... Storm Fields.
1: It's better than Storm Fields with the storm.
3: Okay. But he did have a storm tracker. Storm Fields. Oh. They all oh. have those names like that. You know, I also think what's interesting about the film, too, is they, they do rotate the. Um, the news uh, people as well. And most notably, our star of The Exorcist uh, makes a very brief appearance on the Blair is one of the news reporters who kind of uh, attacks Nev Campbell as she's uh, walking onto school property. But I do like it that it's not like it's just not Courtney Cox throughout the whole film. It's you see it through many different people. Everyone's an opportunist. Everyone is taking advantage of this moment. She just happens to have a different connection to it. Her in a way, I would argue that while she's an opportunist, she also is fighting for something bigger. Unlike yeah. probably the rest.
1: Yeah, she just happens to be better. She's the one out of all the reporters that thinks to go to the back exit. Right. You know. Yeah, she's just better. She just thinks better.
3: about what's going on instead of what is actually being told to her, right? Because it's a cut and dry case, The the issue of... Nev's mom's murder, kind of like a Paradise Lost scenario, has happened here. Like the town has moved fat past it, and even that idea of, like you said, this movie's ahead of its time in many different ways. And and again, that's probably Kevin Williamson, who wrote this script in like a fit, like went to Palm Springs and wrote it within like a, a week or so, uh, maybe even less. And it's amazing that he's able to capture so much and I'm sure everything was added to it and all the little tweaks like, you know, having Wes Craven play Freddy as a janitor in the high school, all those like little things. But yeah. the movie Having is one so... of the
1: cops in Nightmare be like the sheriff here, same yes. actor. I love oh, that.
3: Even the opening line when Casey's parents, that's uh, Drew Barrymore's parents come home, you know, the father tells the mother, go to the Mackenzies, which is the same thing that Lori told Lindsay and Tommy to do in Halloween.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a horror movie made by somebody who's like, scholarly and there's i almost feel like there's moments where it could get annoying you know right like the very like there's some bits i think especially towards the end some of like the conversations between like nev and skeet are just too movie droppy i'm like come on you guys like get some sort of other things in your life yeah yeah but but at that point like sexy enya kind of music clicks on like the
3: Uh, i mean the the sliver music i mean at that point though too like going to a, a Blockbuster video, I worked at a Blockbuster, like the idea of like, like, you know, that was, I think, you know, we're talking about kind of pre-internet. There was this, that was your currency. Like, oh, I know about this and I know about that. Like, that's how I think Jamie Kennedy is in this group. I wanted to know if you found anything in your research when you did your Halloween series about Wes Craven and his relationship with Halloween. Because this movie definitely, like we've talked about we've talked about it a few times already. Like, they definitely focus a lot on Halloween. You know, it's playing in the background of the final act of this film. And I wonder if, like, part of it, you know, I think is the commentary that people probably conflate the two or don't even know the difference between the two. And, you know, they're interchangeable. Uh, but You mean the way
1: that, like, Rose McGowan says this?
0: You know, if I was wrong about Cotton Weary, then the killer's still out there. But Doug Other you're starting to sound like some Wes Carpenter flicker or something.
3: yeah, Yeah. which I mentioned a little bit earlier, too, like the idea, like it's so in the pocket. But also, like, I think for someone watching that movie, some people get that joke. Some people don't get that joke. And I think that that's great, like because it doesn't take you out. I did
1: not get that joke. I did not get that joke in 1996 because I hadn't seen any of these movies. I thought they were too old and scary.
3: Was there anything there? Well, you know, like, why do you think Halloween is the movie? Because it's it. You know, Wes Craven created straight, strong female characters, too. Is it just because it's a it's a woman in a house they wants the parallel? Or is it just like he is saying that is the best one? Like, what do you do you think there's a commentary there? Or is that just Kevin Williamson going? I think this is the most reflective to show it on screen and then show it actually happening side by side.
1: I mean, I think it is because Halloween really is the template one. Halloween really is the one that sets the rules that everybody follows. I mean, that's what I think is so fascinating about the history of Hollywood is because like something comes out and makes money and then everyone copies it almost like it's a jinx. Like it would be a jinx to do anything wrong, anything different from what this template is. It would be a jinx to do anything other than like guy with knife and mask stabbing girls. And like, that's how it's got to go. And then the last person who lives is a girl. That's what happened in Halloween. Halloween came out, made a ton of money. So then Friday the 13th did the exact same thing, followed the exact same formula, did it a little worse, but it also made a lot of money. And then it just gets engraved in stone. And I think it's so fascinating when that happens because like, that is how... Genres like explode and die. It's like a. It's like watching the sun die. You copy and copy and copy and copy and make and make copies so many times that then it loses all of its power and you have to reboot it dramatically with something like Scream. But it really was Halloween that like set this template and it's like accidental choices, like not having Jamie Lee have a love scene, become things that then become photocopied as though they are lore. I just think that's fascinating
3: absolutely and by the way i I, you know just to drop back to our beginning part of our conversation i told you like the movie that i fell in love with sydney poitier with is just a lethal weapon clone you know it is just like okay lethal weapon work it's you know it's danny glover and Mel gibson so now we're going to do sydney poitier and Tom Berenger, like it's there are so many of these things, yeah. You know, like it, like and and like not to say that shoot to kill is bad. I don't even know. I would like to rewatch it now, but but like that idea that you're right, like it's just keep on doing it, keep on doing it, and even the sequels fall like the sequels can't even keep up. I think Die Hard's a great example of that as well. Like it just keeps on like eating its own tail, and then it's like I don't even know what I'm doing because to even keep these characters alive and moving forward, it's like. Uh, what's another crazy-ass scenario that we can yeah. keep, keep on putting them in? Like, they have to become superheroes.
1: It's like we've talked about the Rumpro story on this show, right? Because the Row story so. is something I think about all the time. I, like, read it in a random newspaper, like some sort of random advice column, and it has never left me because I feel like it is a story that captures what happens in Hollywood and makes it so frustrating to be a person who loves movies and wants to see them evolve. So this woman wrote in this story about how... In her family, every time she makes like a rump roast, which is a thing I've like literally never made, like baking a whole bunch of beef at once, it seems crazy. But like every time she makes a rump roast, she takes out the rump, she takes out this big piece of meat. She cuts off like the narrow end. She cuts off like an inch or two of the narrow end, puts it in a roasting pan and like bakes it. And she was explaining like she learned how to do that because her mother did the same thing. She learned it from the grandmother. The grandmother always cut off the end of the rump roast and baked it. So her mother always cut off the end of the rump roast and she baked it. And so she always cuts off the end of the rump roast and bakes it. And she never questioned why she did it. She figured it had to be like something to make it better. You know, like maybe that piece of meat is bad or something like that. She realized the reason it happened in her family was that her grandmother just had a really small pan and she couldn't fit the whole piece of meat into her pan. So she had to cut off the end of it to make Whoa. it work. And her mother just adopted it and thought that that was how it worked. And so like a weird accidental, like, I guess this is what we'll do to make this work becomes like tradition. Well, and it's I a mean, tradition with no purpose. And I think that is what I mean, that don't you feel happens. it with
3: bread too? I mean, like, you know, for me, I'm always like... Uh, <laughs> You know, it's like you could like I always take out that first slice at the edge of the bread and then I put it back in. Yeah, like, I do the as same a, thing. Yeah. Like, why am I putting that back in?
1: No, it's the same thing. And then on, Hollywood does the same thing, but like with millions of dollars and in a way that like makes a genre feel boring. And so I don't know. I don't that Like, I'm just fascinated in that. Like, I feel like in my own life, I'm always trying to look for moments in which I'm cutting off the end of the rump roast and not even realizing why I'm doing it. You know, because like if you're doing something for a dumb reason, it's destructive
3: ultimately. Well, but also what happens is when you try to break that pattern, the immediate response is, no, we don't do it that way. And no one questions, well, wait, why don't we do it that way? And and like, I think that was the rejection that the script got when it came out. You know, the script comes out and no one knows what to do with it. They just don't get it. You know, because this movie, is it a comedy? Is it is it this other thing? And, and it takes somebody like Wes Craven, who I think isn't just making a rump roast, right? Like, you know, the way, like, I think that Wes Craven looked at it and understood, like, he wasn't just like, I get lucky, I'm going to make a, like, I have a good mask and I have a, you know, and I'm ready to make a horror movie. Like, he actually saw the, what this movie could be and how to navigate the comedy and the horror, whereas other people just, Simply we're like, well, but it's a it's a comedy, but it, how do you make that? You know, so I think it takes a, a, a really bigger brain person to kind of yeah. jump in and do something different. Now, that doesn't always and work. Course, Sometimes yeah. you do that and it falls apart, too.
1: Yeah. And of course, he didn't want to make this movie like it was offered to him and he was like,
3: no. And the opening 15 minutes of
5: scary movie was so hard. I almost didn't want to go there again. Um, and then I sort of kicked myself in the pants and said, you know, you have a lot of fans that have been telling you you should go back and do a real kick-ass movie again. And I said, if ever there was a kick-ass movie, it's, it's a scary movie.
3: You know, and so, look, like, you know, like, we're lucky that he did get to direct it, but also the choice that we talked about at the beginning, this idea of, like, Drew Barrymore, you know, being the, the first kill, like, he wanted Drew Barrymore to be the Nev Campbell part, but Drew Barrymore was the one who wanted to be the first kill. So, like... There are all these like little circumstances that just start to make a movie a classic. It's not like, oh, Wes Craven thought, oh, I'm going to circumnavigate this by putting Drew Barrymore at the front, you know. But now people copy that. Like people have copied that, like, oh, we're going to do these red herrings. We're going to put somebody that you don't think is going to die, going to die. Like, I remember that The Lost Pilot was supposed to star Michael Keaton and that, and he was going to play the Jack character. And at the end of Lost, he was going to die. Like, this idea, like, well, oh, you don't know anyone, it could come for anyone. So, even though this movie is incredibly smart, there are a lot of people making small choices throughout. whether that is Matthew Lillard, whether that is Drew Barrymore asking for something else, you know, like there's a lot of these little choices that I think Courtney Cox fighting for this role that all make, you know, it's a collaborative effort. I think it's just interesting that you know, everyone brings their own take to this genre.
1: No, I agree. And then because you have Drew Barrymore in that role even though it was an accident, it wasn't supposed to happen. Then you start looking for the other connections and you're like, you convince yourself it was deliberate. Like there's mm-hmm. that moment where, um when Rose McGowan is like sent to the garage to get beers and she's bending over and the camera kind of goes towards her ass, but not in a way that feels super leering, more in a way where you just become aware that her skirt is like the vertigo spiral. And mm-hmm. you're like, whoa, that's another like nod to Hitchcock, man. Like he's going crazy. I mean, I feel like, the vertigo spiral on the miniskirt is a deliberate Hitchcock homage, but the first one was just like lucky. And then he rolls with it and it like, and it becomes like these two things start to fit together as though you assume that it was deliberate. Well, then there are things that like seem more deliberate in the script. I mean, like the whole idea that like Billy is Billy Loomis, like Loomis is a character from psycho. He's the guy who shows up in the second half of the movie. Cause he's um, he's Vera miles, boyfriend. And so, and so like Loomis was a name that then like got taken. Now we are talking rump roast Loomis was a name that then Halloween stole. Uh, they used it for the name of the doctor in Halloween. And so then to use Loomis for a third time here, I guess it is the third generation rump roast, but it is a nod. It's a rump roast. It's a loving rump roast salute to the name Loomis.
3: Well, but you're deconstructing rump roast here too. It's not just doing it to True. do it. Right. You know, it's like, you're right. Oh, yeah. like it, it, like, you know, it's like, how many things can we do that won't distract again? you know, it's I, I'm on the show Star Trek Lower Decks. It's an animated Star Trek show, which I really, really love. It's incredibly funny. I have a very small partner, but um, it is a comedy about a bunch of people who work on a on the enterprise. And there are so many Easter eggs hidden throughout the series that don't distract from the actual story. And I think that sometimes what we do now is we try to be so clever, like, do you see what we did here? Do you see it? and and it almost pulls you out. It's like, look, Reference, 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 reference. Um, whereas this movie, like, if you don't know Freddy Krueger and you see that janitor and you see it's Wes Craven, like, there's no, there's no moment there. There's like, there is a great moment. It's there's this movie is full of those things without making it so like unabashed. Like, aren't I'm proud of myself for this reference? And I think a lot of shit that we see lately is is so hyped on showing you like what you see. What we did, see what we did here. You know, and, I, and, I, and it, it kind of loses me sometimes.
0: Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack.
2: Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better, too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.
1: But then, like, in the whole history of how this movie came together, I hate that we have to say this last name, but we do. This film is by Dimension. This film is produced by Bob Weinstein Bob was really the one who had the hand in the movie not Harvey Bob mm-hmm. is also a giant dick um but Bob it's interesting when you hear about the story of how Bob like dealt with this production because it seems like he didn't understand the movie that they were making either like he tried to be very clear like in his meetings with like Kevin Williamson he was like Kevin did I buy the script that I think I bought is it a funny movie with scares or is it a scary movie with humor and then kevin was like it's a scary movie with humor and he was like okay so it was bob's idea to change the name of the movie at the time like kevin was pitching it as a movie called scary movie and he was like if it's a scary movie with humor that name is too dumb and it was bob's idea to name it scream he got the name scream from like the michael jackson song do you do you remember the michael jackson song scream Yeah, let me play yes it. yeah okay yeah The video for that Michael Jackson song, it's like him and Janet Jackson. That video cost $7 million. It was like the most expensive video that had ever been made at that time. I mean, to put that into context, Scream cost like $15 million. So this Michael Jackson video costs like half of Scream. But in the rest of Bob's conversations with like with Wes Craven and with Kevin Williamson, it kind of becomes clear that he thought they were making a dumber, more cliche horror film. It was Bob who wanted like Drew Barrymore to be dressed like sexier. It was Bob who thought like the mask wasn't scary, which to me is like such a clear mistake. Like he wanted more of like a bespoke creepy mask with like teeth, like something more individualistic. I mean, to me, what makes the scream mask scary is that anybody could buy it. You know, it's well, not I mean, like it's truly, not like I'm a leather face sewing this and there's only one and only me. The idea that anybody could put it on is terrifying.
3: Well, that's what makes that sequence in the school when the kids are acting out as, uh, you know, Ghostface even more scary because you're right. It could be bought. And this mask, what by the way, was not developed for the film. It was already in novelty stores uh, between 91 and 92. Right. It was a yeah, part of it, a series called like Fantastic Faces. like yeah. so it came in a bunch of colors
1: it came in like pink and green and white or it came with like a white hood it came in like orange yeah and they tried to like they found this mask like randomly while they were um location scouting uh it was the producer kathy conrad i think who found it and she was like this is great and they tried to they didn't want to mess around with getting the rights. So they tried to make make copies of it that were just different enough that maybe they could get away with using it. And they just couldn't like none of their copies were like good enough. They kept all, also adding teeth, which is just so dumb, like teeth are way overrated, like ghost face, yeah, like yawning wide teeth. mouth. Oh, it's wonderful. But no, well, like- by
3: the way, and they, the only thing they really had to do was figure out how to get the rights of the mask and also get a name change because it was known as the peanut eyed ghost. Um, and so they changed it to ghost face because they felt like it was a ghost, like screaming in pain. Um, but I just love that, like, there was this, this idea, like, the, the, again, complete and utter happenstance. Like it, Happenstance. It, it, yeah. The to fact have a that
1: movie it, called The Scream and then you find a mask that kind of looks like that Edvard Munch painting, The Scream. It's yeah. just a
3: ghost screaming. And by the way, it is, I think one of the things about this movie, again, just talking about the grounding of it. And the, I know you've already said it, but the idea, like. It's not like overtly, overtly scary. Like it's not like oh my god, like there's bugs crawling. Out. Like you can see the pla- like you can see the plastic. It looks like, it does look like something you would buy for ten bucks at the store. Like it's, and I think that that, in a way, makes it more scary because I mean, first of all, it could be anyone, and uh, and I mean the only thing that's really dumb about this mask and and, I you know look, I'm not here to poke holes in this movie. But when that fucking ghost face shows up in the supermarket and the reflection in the freezer aisle, I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? Like what? what he's he's in that full get up in the grocery store. Like, for what reason? Like, there's no I mean, I get it. Like, I think maybe <laughs> if I'm going to put on my director's hat, I'm saying that is uh, the director saying that she's being watched. Not that there's a guy running around in a full cloak and screen mask in town at the supermarket where they most definitely would be seen like, you know, like it was a crazy <laughs> moment. Like I was like, this is just straight up insane.
1: I mean, fair, absolutely fair. I mean, to me, the most ridiculous thing about the mask is just the fringe attached to it. That fringe is so goofy and it looks so cheap. It looks so, so cheap. But I do feel like maybe the cheapness is the point. The cheapness is the point, And that is what I keep telling myself. However, like Bob Weinstein was convinced that this mask was like a complete disaster to the point that he called up the producer and he was like, this is not it. I'm not going to sign off on this mask. What I want you to do, they're already in production. They're already shooting the movie. He was like, I don't like this mask. I can't decide what mask it should be. So I want you to shoot every scene with the killer four times using four different masks. And then later on, I'll decide which mask I want to use. And to their credit, they were like, absolutely not. No, that is so dumb. And I feel like Kathy Conrad, uh, the producer here, like, really took a lot of grief and like held true to what she thought this movie should be. So I want to just like give big praise to Kathy Conrad for fighting for the scream mask, because I think also a secondary level of what makes it so good is because you could have a gazillion copycats, you kind of get this idea of blankness, I think to ghost face, you know, like, and I think there's something in this movie in the way that it uses, that uses blankness, like a lack as as being terrifying because like what is what is the scariest thing about these killers about Ghostface at the end when they start talking about their motives is that they say they don't have any you know they say they have no motives they say like it's the millennium who needs a motive which to me reminds me of what we were talking about last week when we were talking about Fargo how how um Roger Ebert said that thing about like killing where people are like killed with air quotes, you know, that we are at a moment of like such pure irony that like death wasn't death. Death was like death. And I feel like there is something in like that kind of who cares? We're all Matthew Lillard in the mid 90s. The millennium is coming and people just are kind of like, whatever, whatever. Like, it's, well, and also it's you know terrifying. the millennium's
3: coming, but the Willennium is coming too. I mean that that album was and coming the millennium is yeah. coming. Uh, but the,
1: the idea that death is like is ironic and meaningless. I mean, I also think that well, like but I mean, is this, like lying too. Yes, He's like I mean, lying he, when he says yes. he doesn't have a
3: motive because I mean that, I think. But that's I think what what that does is it gives you your cake and and you can eat it too. Like like the idea that like Matthew Lillard coming along for the ride, I buy that, and I think that like Skeet lying to her almost is a fuck you to be like I'm not even going to tell you why I'm doing it. You're going to die not even knowing it. Like it's not like we've also lived in this world where it's like hello Mr. Bond, my grand plan is this and I'm going to tell mm-hmm. you the whole story so you get it. Like and and I feel like his first instinct is not, is to be more threatening by having nothing to make her feel more out of, wait, why would you do that? Oh, I don't even understand it. And it. But the whole movie does make sense. It like locks down in a very good thing. But I think what's more interesting is the plan to pin it on somebody else, the awareness of the culture, which you talked about this before with Paradise Lost and the, and the fact that like Leah uh, Schreiber, who we see briefly in this movie, who comes back big in the second film, is pinned for a murder he didn't commit. Like this idea too is like, we're so aware of being crazy and murder or whatever that we also know how the story will go better. It's a better story. On the anniversary of her mother's death, the father comes back and kills everybody and his daughter. Like, it's such a, it's like, that is the traditional maybe end of this movie that they're so well versed in horror films that they're able to actually create another believable ending. What would be your motive? It's the millennium. Motives are incidental. And then I
1: think it adds this whole other layer to it as well. Because like, then Skeet is saying like, maybe I did it because like your mom was cheating with my dad. And that's why my family broke up. And you can hear in his voice that that is when he's being sincere and it cuts to Matthew Lillard just enough for Matthew Lillard to be like, Oh, is that why we're doing it? I didn't even know that's why we're doing it. And it's kind of fascinating because like Skeet is like, I am deeply hurt by my family breaking up, like deeply hurt by my family breaking up.
3: And And by the way, that's a, that's such a small feeling for such a violent crime. It, there's something really, I don't know, engaging about that to me. Like yeah. you broke up my perfect life. Like, you know, it's not like I'm crazy. I just want blood. It's like my mom and dad broke up. And so this is the way I'm dealing with it. It's like, wow. It's like, I don't know. It just it, it grounds that character to me. It's very small. It's not like you, you know, you killed my mother. You did this. It's like my you made my parents get divorced.
1: Yeah, it adds so much to like that conversation he has in the hallway where he's upset that like Sydney thinks maybe he made murdered him, which, by the way, what a great way of getting around the fact that he's the killer is to like figure him as the killer right away and then go through the process of like getting him out of jail her forgiving him, him, you know, like trying to defend himself. But he has that scene in the hallway where he's like being so sensitive and like defensive. And I think that conversation is such a fascinating kind of example of like like the male-female interplay, like him being kind of manipulative and not caring about her feelings, but like doing it in a way where like he's the victim. I mean, it's fascinating.
5: Understand what, when I have a girlfriend who would rather accuse me of being a psychopathic killer than touch me?
0: You know that's not true.
5: Then what is it?
0: What is it? Billy, I was attacked and nearly filleted last night.
5: I mean, between us. I mean, you haven't been the same since Since your mother died.
0: Is your brain leaking? My mom was killed. I can't believe you're bringing this up.
5: I know it's been a year. Tomorrow.
0: One year tomorrow.
5: I know. what. I think it's time you got over that. I mean, when my mom left my dad, I accepted it. It's the way it is. She's not coming back.
0: Your parents split up. This is not the same thing. Your mom left town. She's not lying in a coffin somewhere. Okay,
5: okay, okay. I'm sorry. It's, it's a bad analogy.
1: But I want to ask you: Do you believe Matthew Lillard right here when he says he's just doing this because of peer pressure?
4: Hello?
0: Oh, Stu, Stu, Stu. What's your motive? Billy's got one. The police are on their way. What are you gonna tell them?
5: Peer pressure. I'm far too sensitive. I'm gonna rip you off, you bitch! It's like your fucking mother! You
0: gotta find me first, you pansy ass mama's boy! Fuck! Ah, fucking hit me with a phone, dick!
4: Oh, fucker, where are you? Ah! Ah, you fuck! Ah. Did you really call the police? you
0: your sorry, ass,
1: asshole. My mama tagged everything.
3: Ah! I believe him, but I think that that line is too self aware for that character, but these characters are self aware, so I kind of cut it slack so yes i I believe it i also I think that it rings true that I know it's true. I don't know if he would be able to articulate that in that moment. um but I do believe it's like, yeah, let's do this, this is crazy. It's like it's sort of like why anyone does any stupid shit in high school. I mean, I did some dumbass shit, like why did I do it? like I remember when we were trick-or-treating one year, I mean, this is incredibly dangerous, but we all decided we were throwing, like, these, like, boulders out in the middle of the road, so when cars would come, they would just, like, like hit the undercarriage of their oh car. Oh, my and, God. Like, yeah. I mean, like, on the road, they weren't dropping it from an overpass, but it was, like, and it was, like, I remember, like, one car ran over it, and, like, their muffler, like, dropped out, and I was, like, oh, fuck, and then, like, and all of a sudden, I saw the reality of, like, oh, this could actually hurt a car, and then we stopped Doing it, but yet we were doing it to hurt a car. But then when you saw it actually happen and like you're like, oh, like, and I think that there's an element of just being super stupid. And when yeah. you're a kid and you're like, let's go, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a great idea. This is great. Oh, let's do this. Okay, I'm gonna do that. And I feel like that that's the energy that he presents throughout the entire movie. Like he's not like, you know, in many ways, I but I buy him jumping in on the dumb idea and keep on going forward and maybe even pushing further and further and further. Like I almost feel like Sidney Prescott was the original idea and then you know he's like no let's kill drew barrymore first you know like because that's like, his
1: ex-girlfriend
3: yes exactly so yeah. like, you like i want to get on this too like you know it's like so there I is mean, they you know- kill
1: they keep just killing all their girlfriends i mean okay who really kills who because i think there's a way of watching this and thinking that pretty much skeet ulrich could have killed almost everybody by himself and like lillard didn't kill that many people like you could say that skeet did drew if you believed like If you believe the Rose McGowan alibi. Uh, I
3: believe that Skeet killed the boyfriend. Lillard killed Drew. I think that uh, Lillard was sent to scare Sydney in the house. And then Skeet rescues her to kind of keep her guessing. But then the phone drops out. So then that becomes a problem. Do you think the phone
1: drops out on purpose or not?
3: No, I think that was a mistake.
1: So he's not trying to get arrested.
3: Uh Oh, Uh, But now Devin disagrees with me. Devin feels like the phone dropping out was like, I think the phone dropping out is to give you a red, we need red herrings, right? Like the whole time. So like, I think the whole time you have to be thinking it's him. And then right at the end, when they have sex, you have to be like, it's definitely not him. And I think that like, I think that that was not part of the plan. Uh, But also like their plan is suspect because it's like, all right, so you were just going to go to Sydney's house two days before the anniversary of the mom's death or the day before the mom's death and then just scare her or were you going to kill her? Yeah. Like, I don't know what that is. And then, but yes, I understand that they threw the party. That was their party. They were going to, like, they created a massacre scenario. They kidnapped the dad. That's why the dad doesn't come into the play. Um,
1: Like who's in the bathroom at the high school? Like, is Uh, it?
3: That one I think is either, either, or. Like, I mean, yeah. I, that, like, you know, I, but I, I almost feel like like who killed the principal? Why is there a motive to kill the principal? There yeah. isn't like who killed the the like at the end, it's a bloodbath. And at the end, I feel like the two of them are running around both in scream masks and robes. I don't think it's like one. Yeah. So I think that they're both just so I think that's why it's like we're going to kill everybody here and we're going to stab ourselves. Like that was their plan. Yeah. But at the end doesn't make a, the end makes sense. But, you know.
1: I think Lillard's in the bathroom because I don't think Skeet would have had time to get there after she yells at him in the hallway
3: right. or like him.
1: Yeah. So because I think that he has comes to be Lillard in knowing
3: there. like he comes in knowing that like he's like, Hey, I'm like, I'm sweet now. Like he's yeah. playing her really well. He He's playing her really well. And they're, they're playing like this double game of chess. And I yeah. think they're also like, they're also trying to create enough plausible deniability so they can get her to the house. They can get this plan does need her to be there. Which is why it's the true. house attack is the only thing that doesn't truly make sense to me because it's like, what was the end game of that? Just to scare her? Because, or was it, I'm just going to call her and scare her I don't know. It's I mean, it is weird
1: because if you scare her, that makes her less likely to want to go to the party or does it make her want to be? more? But it makes her not want to be in the house.
3: Right. She doesn't want to be in the house alone. And because the dad's kidnapped, she can't go anywhere and because nothing really happened. There's nothing going on. So there is that. But they also like leave the mask at the crime scene, which is interesting. Like so then you're like, was it only Skeet York? I feel like Wes Craven definitely has that math. And I think some of it has to be a little bit foggy.
2: I'm going to say this.
1: I think the person in the bathroom might just be a rando. One of the randos in costume who's just sort of there. Mm. Maybe, maybe because I I don't. How do you even know that Nev's going to come into the bathroom? I, that one seems kind of random. I think that Skeet killed the principal because Matthew Lillard is getting ready for the party. I think that Skeet. But they, killed, they
3: love the principal because they got uh, they got school out. That's true.
1: And the principal says he loves them or the,
3: the intercom. By the I, way, best hidden joke in the movie, uh, the leather jacket and the closet. Fonzie's leather jacket. Oh, oh, so good. Great.
1: I think Skeet kills Rose McGowan.
3: But I wonder, like... Oh, does Matt- yeah. No, 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 yeah. no. Matthew Lillard has to, right? But
1: he's, like, in the living room and he tells her to go get a beer. Uh, so right. how does he, te- he...
3: Right, does he just... But he does... Then he comes into the garage.
1: So do you think... Why would he kill his girlfriend? I mean, I know they have the whole conversation in here. They're like, you. there's always some bullshit reason to kill your girlfriend. But why gonna would kill he kill it. his girlfriend? They're
3: killing everybody. Yeah. Like, I feel like there's no... No one's living in this scenario, right? They're going to be heroes. They, I mean, they didn't think this thing through, but maybe, so if that's the case, oh, maybe you're right. You kill Rose McGee, like, so (laughs) Lillard says to Skeet, you kill uh, my girlfriend, and then I'll kill her. Because, right, in that that part of the switch, like, basically, uh, Skeet looks like he's dead, then Matthew Lillard wipes off the knife, that great scene, and then comes after her. So in that moment, It's like, it's like Strangers on the Train. It's like, I'll do you, you do me, I'll do your favor, you do my favor, and then we'll be kind of clean. So maybe in that, in that world, you're right. Skeet killed Drew Barrymore. If it is like flip-flopping. I can say that. Like, I can't kill the person that I know.
1: Yeah. Although Matthew Lillard would know the house better. He would know Drew, Drew Barrymore's house better. True oh I mean, you know i mean there's like i went really deep in this like trying to figure it all out i mean there's like even a reddit thread that's trying to figure out who put the news guy's body on the van like wouldn't that be a two-person job yeah putting kenny on the news van and like was there time for like both of them to come out and like put the body on the news van or no but whatever it is i mean i feel like the dynamic between the killers is pretty clear right skeet is angry and matt is just crazy or like passive or wild like that's sort of what it was with columbine right? like, Eric well, was I mean, the yeah. mastermind and Dylan was the follower. Is that what it was?
3: I mean, yes. I mean, yeah, but I mean, you know, I I, I wonder also, you know, in, in in this time that we live in where you look back and everything is slightly different than what was presented at the moment. You know, I, I uh, you know, I think that they're I think the two of them had a plan. It is they're not great at it. And it just keeps on getting a little bit messed up. And I think they're playing a lot of catch-up, uh, yeah. you know, uh, to make it work. And then there are just some things that you're just going to put in there for a horror movie. Like, I have no idea how they were able to string up uh, Drew Barrymore and slice her open in, like, 35 seconds. I mean, she's yeah. dragging her across a field and, like, you know, and and, and hanging her from a tree. Which is also crazy <laughs> imagery, by the way, uh, for the, the first shot of a movie. Just yeah. in many respects. Uh, but, yeah.
1: I mean, whatever it is, it feels like I wonder if on some level, Sydney knows that this is happening, like some sort of visceral level. Like the reason she won't sleep with her boyfriend is because some part of her is like is like that penis raped my mother. Mm -hmm. Do you think she could be picking up on some sort of gut like instinct? This guy is dangerous. Or is it just like grief that keeps her from wanting to use her body?
3: Oh, yeah. I think that the death the brutal raping and murdering of your mom might might put her in a in a way where she's not super into having uh, sex or, or or even in the right headspace to exist. Like, yeah, like I, I like and I think at that end, when she decides to do it, there is a moment of like, I'm giving up or I'm giving over. Or I'm just like, uh, yeah, maybe the maybe it's the end of the grief. I don't know. I don't there's so many things going on in that moment or like yeah, that signifies like an end to the grief. It's one year. Yeah. It's this, you know, I don't, again, I don't know. I need, you know, I know my mom wore black for a year when her husband passed away. Like there are these like weird markers that maybe unintentionally, by the way, uh, it feels like
1: to me, like her choosing life.
3: Yes. Is what I would say. Her well, yeah, being her, like her, I have yeah. lived
1: in this darkness. I I'm choose taking control life. back.
3: I'm taking yeah. my control. I'm going, I'm, I'm entering into life again. I'm coming. Like, it's like, isn't that idea like in the third act of a movie, a character comes face to face with something that like changes their point of view. And I think there is this moment of like, fuck it. I'm now I'm, I'm going to go this way. It's not like I'm going to be, it's not like a transition, like at the end of Greece, like I'm now this person. It's just sort of like yeah. this agreement. Like, yeah, I think you're right. By the way, I want to not
1: feel like an about face for her. Like that's what no. I appreciate about Nev Campbell is it feels like kind of the same girl changing her mind. And by the way, like how, how funny is it that like Wes Craven, you know, make Skeet Ulrich look so much like Johnny Depp in Nightmare on Elm Street. Like even the fact that they both get introduced like, or that he introduces Johnny Depp like climbing through his girlfriend's window, just like Johnny Depp kept doing in Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. He's like, I did it once. I didn't even think that Johnny Depp was that good of an actor, as we talked about in our Nightmare on Elm Street episode.
3: And let me see what will happen with the Skeet Ulrich. I like that. I like that idea. I mean, even that is a callback. Um, I want to just... Just addressing that you said, because I I went online as you were talking about this as well. It does seem like the bathroom was a prank because the killer's dress does not match the same dress that Billy and Stu are wearing.
1: Oh, it doesn't?
3: No. So that could have just been an unrelated prank. And they believe here that Billy killed Principal Hembry because Stu is outside uh, inviting people to his party. That seems like that's that's part of it. Actually, uh, so, you know, Amy, as we were kind of trying to break down Matthew Lillard's uh, point of view or why he wanted to do this, uh, our amazing uh, engineer, Devin, has a, a question for us. So take a listen to this.
5: I, I was just going to ask do we not think it's possible, motive wise, particularly for Matthew Lillard, that he might be in love with Billy Loomis, with Skeet Ulrich's character?
3: Whoa. That's interesting because I think that he does say, you know, when he's like tackling Nev Campbell, like I've always had, I've always had a thing for you, right? Uh, which would lead me to believe that like there the reason that he, if we are true in saying that like they each are killing each other's people, like there is this like pent up frustration that he wanted her and couldn't get her. But I but I I, I would like to go down this route. The reason thinking, I bring yeah. it up,
5: there is a particular shot during the scene in the kitchen where they're kind of saying what, it, you know, what their motivation is. And it's right after Lillard says, you know, peer pressure. And then he kind of leans over Billy. Now, Amy pointed out that Matthew Lillard's character has no respect of personal boundaries, and this is very like him. But we know what mid-90s cinema would have been like, and we know Kevin williamsman is openly gay himself. And I feel like those characters are slightly coded in that moment to let us know that mm. that's an element to their relationship and to their motivation.
1: Oh, you think it's not even just like a friend obsession that's unrequited? you think they might actually be romantic, like mutual? Well, think as, it
5: might- as much as maybe a 96 movie would be allowed to kind of depict, if that makes sense. I think it's not. I, I think and I like that. think are aware of it, though.
3: I think that that's really interesting. You know, there's a whole uh, thing online, too. It's like called Stu Lily, uh, S-T-U-I-L-L-Y. Uh, really? Yes. And like it's, fanfic? It, yeah, well, it's like a, uh, uh, the, it's all about the slash ship between Stuart and right. Bay Loomis. Right. And, and it is this idea like they are together a lot. And, you know, it also, I mean, this is. It you would know, explain it also, why they
1: don't care if their girlfriends all die. Well, that's it. This
3: yeah, is I what was say.
5: That's why I yeah. wanted to barge in and say I, I, I feel like that's an element here, maybe.
3: And they have a lot of close ups of the movie of them like like there's a moment where they are pinning um, uh, Jamie Kennedy together. Yes. You know, they're they're like holding him in and there's something interesting. I I, I buy this as. I buy it. I like it. I didn't think about it. And I like that. I just think it's a layer in there. I'm not saying it's the hard and fast
5: answer. It's just something to think about, I think.
1: I mean, when you say that, I again get that image in my head of Matthew Lillard's reaction when he hears. That Billy is sad about his family breaking up. Like he looks right. genuinely upset.: Oh,
3: hold on, hold on here. Breaking news. Only what? a few hours ago. What? Well, a few hours ago, Kevin Williamson confirms Billy and Stu were a queer what? coded relationship. Yeah, they were based is. on gay killers. Yes. I didn't even uh, see that. <laughs> so they were based on the infamous mass murderers Nathan Frudenthal Leopold Jr. and Richard Albert Loeb. Right, who Loeb and Leopold am- from, yes. from
5: Hitchcock's Rope is what's being referenced there too. Yes,
3: admitted that they were gay and in a relationship. And wow. they were the LGBTQ plus prototype for Bonnie and Clyde. And uh and so this is what Kevin Williamson has to say about it. Um It's very homoerotic in the sense that they were these two guys that killed another person to see if they could get away with it. Um, And one of the reasons that they could get the other one is because they think the other one was secretly in love with him. And if it was a fascinating case study on double murders, if you Google Leopold and Loeb, you'll see and you'll read about it and you go, oh, that's Billy and Stu. Um, And Nev Campbell, who starred in all these films, uh, she said, yes, there was a burgeoning love relationship uh, between them. She calls them pretty confused um their anger comes from not being allowed to be who they want to be uh so right. yeah so there we go oh wow oh yeah
1: now, now i want to um, give them a hug
3: yeah i, I love Why do i want to yeah. give
1: ghostface a hug i should want to hug ghostface <laughs> do you
3: have any other questions let's see uh
1: well i think you have a question for me i think yes. you want to ask me as the tom cruise expert can you really see Tom Cruise's penis and all the right moves?
3: Well, you know what? I wrote that down and I wanted to, to make sure because I was I was like, oh, my gosh, I never had heard that. Like, really, the only penis that I've heard recently, uh, obviously, Ben Affleck and uh, Gone Girl. And then there was Bruce Willis in the, the heat of the night or the color of night. So I did not know about all the right moves and Tom Cruise's penis. So, Amy, let me let me in.
1: I would love to. This is something I actually have looked into historically. So I'm happy to share what I have dug up through my research. So if you have not seen All the Right Moves, it is not one of the most well-known cruises. I would say it's in like the bottom five of cruise mm-hmm. movies that people know about. It's a movie that he does in between Risky Business and Top Gun, where he's getting a leading role and he's really happy, but it's kind of like overly really serious, high-minded football jock drama uh, but his girlfriend in that is Leah Thompson. And the director shoots this love scene between them that I think is done in kind of like a rebuke to the Bob Clarkson again, like Porky style of like teen sex comedy where he shoots like a really naturalistic love scene between the two of them. That's not supposed to be like titillating at all. Um, It's a kind of like love scene where like Leah Thompson takes off her shirt and you're not thinking boobies. You're thinking like, Oh, what a well-filmed like close up of her areola. You know, it's like almost clinical the way that he shoots this love scene. Yeah. It's, I actually admire it. I admire the love scene, the way that they're trying to do it. And it feels like the only kind of love scene that Tom Cruise would have wanted to say yes to at that moment in his career. But so they're like embracing and it's like really, really kind of graphic, like nipple to areola embracing. And the camera hands down. And for several seconds in the shadows, you absolutely do see like the upper half of a penis. Like it's in shadow, but it is such a clear silhouette. There's like shaft, there's like head. It is one of the more graphic things you've ever seen. Um, it's not like in color, it's all silhouetted, but it is there. And Cruz has said when he got asked about it, that it was like a body double, that it wasn't really him. You know, it's not his penis at all, but Leah Thompson is like, Neither one of us had all had the clout to ask for a body double. Those are my boobs. And that is clearly his penis. And in subsequent versions of the movie getting re-released, like the penis scene has been edited out, which does seem like Cruz being like, yeah, yeah, no, I don't want that out there. Please don't freeze frame it, which is absolutely his right to do. Like I wouldn't want that freeze frame if I was him. I don't think he knew at all that the director was even going to get that shot when he was panning down. But I think the director in my interpretation was trying to make a stance that I admire, you know, like, we show women's movies. Why don't we show this? And, you know, trying to kind of level the playing field with this, like with this, like teen sex scene that goes against every kind of teen sex scene that was being filmed at the time. But yes, if you look on the internet, it is there.
0: Wow.
3: I love that very detailed explanation. Now, the final question I have, another question for you is this. Horror movies, traditionally, I think, are not like the, at the forefront of critic reviews. I think it, oh, you know, it's kind of a lot of the movies, and at least in my memory, were always like not given screeners to critics before they even came out. Like a lot of times they get reviewed on a Saturday. It's a weird thing. Like studios are like, no, no, we're holding this back. We don't want even the public perception to get in here. But what was the perception of this film in 1996 when this comes out?
1: You know, people kind of liked this movie when it came out. This movie was actually seen as like, huh. I expected garbage and you have given me a very good cheeseburger. I would not say that it was like received with wild raves, but I think it was received very friendly. Like people really admired this. There were a few people that didn't like it, but you actually kind of have to scour. Um, And the the ones that like, don't like it actually seem a bit contradictory to me. So I will read them. This is from the San Francisco Examiner. They call it a quote, artificial and hypocritical effort to escape the artistic limitations of teenage slasher fix. And while this critic likes all the actresses, it says that, quote, Skeet Ulrich brings the impassive stare and inertness of a frog on a rock to the role Jesus. of a grungy high school hunk. And if you're going to see Craven's new movie, maybe you'll experience the same consolation I had. The high school audiences in the preview audience shrieked in mock terror, shared sarc- sarcastic advice to the characters on screen, and angrily berated them with every insulting term they could think of. The wild, truly frightening energy of these kids would surely terrorize any serial killer they might encounter. So it seems that like the kids who went to this movie went into it not thinking they were going to see a smart movie, thinking they're going to see another garbage horror movie and treated it as such. Um, That like they didn't kind of do it a quick
3: about face. But were they also treating or just proving Wes Craven's point? Like that these are the kids this movie is made for because they're doing the same thing that our characters are doing.
1: That's true. I mean we were really worried about the kids in the nineties. We really thought they like had no emotions. Yeah. Um and school shootings hadn't even really happened that much yet. It's so crazy how like paranoid we were before things got bad. Anyway. The Chicago Reader says this, uh, the assumption that there's something inherently clever about a slasher movie making reference to both its genre and the filmmaking process is a fundamental flaw of this tiresome, blood-filled comedy. But only Skeet Ulrich, playing a love-sick sick teenager, layers his performance enough to make plausible the notion that his character knows he's a character in a movie, which he announces over and over and over again. And other characters aren't as adept at straddling the line between characterization and self-parody, nev campbell and courtney cox may be hindered by the fact that their roles are contrived to be politically correct
3: politically correct Uh, correct there was such a yeah Yeah. there was such a thing there but like i also feel like is politically correct meaning like they have autonomy and that they actually have strength it's like
1: politically correct you're right it was like the term that was basically the woke of the 90s an exhausting thing that just got like worked beyond all meaning and you know erased of all of its good intentions i mean because what this movie doesn't even make any like big feminist stances they only kind of like no, yes, they're smart high, yeah they're just smart they're just human beings the only kind of moment that i would say is like the the like high-fiving in the theater like girl power moment is probably is the end is this moment right here
4: this is the moment when the supposedly dead killer comes back to life for one
1: last scare
2: not in my movie
1: but other than that this is not like speechifying i mean if this person thinks like these characters were hindered by the fact that their roles are contrived to be politically correct my god they need to see the 355 this person
3: Uh, has
1: no idea how bad it's gonna get
3: but you know what i think there's a difference again we're talking about this idea of like you make a good character that is smart interesting well-rounded. It's not about being woke. I think you could point to some recent examples right now of a very popular show that's on, uh, you know, streaming where it's they're striving so hard to be woke that it almost dilutes. It's like, like I don't, I don't know. I think there's a difference between having characters that are real and that have opinions and are not just like the cookie cutter versions of what we've seen before because those are not real characters and then there are you know then there's like so striving to make a point like we've talked about that a lot like all these people are like I'm trying to show you you know my take on something but it's better always better to just do it instead of like showing like how smart you are
1: no you're right I mean this brings me to I think one of my favorite things that Wes says about this movie you know he says like If you want to know how to really surprise people when they go see a horror film, this is what you need.
5: Dewey's character could have easily been slapstick, but David always brings it back to somebody who is really a true person. To me, it's always been one of the most interesting things to do in the genre is to start with situations that could be cliche or characters that could be cliche and then make it human. Because it always catches everybody off guard and and makes it much more powerful.
3: I love that.
1: I love that, too. I don't know why that's so hard. Why is that so hard?
3: I think because sometimes, a lot of the times with horror films, it's teens, it's young people, and often not being directed or uh, or written by a young person. And I think there is this disposable nature of them. They are just like well, we talked about this in the show a lot. Like this, they're just a body. They're just a body that needs a knife in it, right? There's nothing there, and and there's uh, but you. Know, Kevin Williamson is a young writer at this time. who I think is very in touch with like youth and and wants to make a movie that he wants to see. And I think when you see, you know, filmmakers like Robert Rodriguez, like I love the movies that he's done, like these uh, continuations of like, uh, we can be heroes and like the, like which is kind of like a continuation of Spy Kids and stuff. Like there's this, you know, this idea of treating younger people with respect. Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse is a great example of that as well. You know, um, so there's there's one
1: thing I would wish for the world. It's that we would make our movies for young people, for actual young people. And I mean this when I say like, Teen movies, I mean this when I say like kids movies, I wish we could make them without the idea that some parent is over their shoulder making sure the film has vitamins and that people are told what, how to behave well and that everybody's like talked down to.
3: I it's wish amazing, we made but it's fun, always messy it's, movies. But it's always like this idea of like by committee. I was uh, reading that new Mel Brooks book, which is great, all about me. And there's like this whole section and trying to get the producers made where they're like, ah, oh, I don't know if we should do something about Hitler. It seems too soon. How about Mussolini? Could it be about like springtime for Mussolini instead? And luckily like he just fought through it. I think there's always going to be someone in front of you trying to stop it. And what, and it's almost as much do you, how much do you care and how much can you get away with fighting for without it being taken away? So in that way, give me more matrix uh, resurrections, in the sense that I'd rather have the person who started the story kind of finish the story than someone trying to do a version of the story. Because, back to the rump roast of it all, it is—it becomes like, well, I think this is that, and I think this is what we want to do here now with Scream Five. And Wes Craven obviously is not involved, and neither is Kevin Williamson. It is time, though, for another reboot of these kind of movies. And is this—is this going to be like the Freddy? Like, the is this too navel-gazy, or do we need a whole new kind of Scream to move us forward? Well, we will see. But so far, the reviews of Scream and from the people I've spoken to, it feels like it did kind of, like, hit the right way or the same way that Scream hit in 1996. So we will see.
1: Oh, I can't wait to see. And when we do that, I think I think what we need also is a reboot of horror and take it back away from, like, the glum glums. I feel like the glum gloves right. are controlling horror right now. Like my, my boyfriend died in this house and I'm going to walk around and look sad for two hours. I'm done mm-hmm. with this. We, we need, I want fun horror movies. Well, again. Gonna,
3: I'll tell you one of my favorite horror films. I know it's a little bit old now and I know they already made a sequel, uh, but I love don't breathe. Uh, oh,
1: don't breathe is fun.
3: It's really fun. And it's like, and you want that, like, you know uh, you want these kind of more fun stories. Uh you know, but I, I yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it goes half, it goes back and forth, and I think that we've the one seen- that I
1: recommend to anybody right now. It's like yeah. on Shutter, is the boy behind the door. It came out last year. It is probably the scariest horror movie I saw last year. It's wonderful, and it stars little kids, and it feels little kid like. It has little kid logic. It's just, it's by the terrifying. way terrifying, and I yelled I- at the TV the whole time.
3: I love it. Now you know we talked about it on how did this get made, but I really like *Malignant* too. I, I like *Malignant*; it's fucking crazy. <laughs> but like, it's but I'm all in. I'm in for that. Like, but that's fun horror to me. Like, and we could break it apart and have fun with it. And there's it's super dumb, but it's also really well done. Like, the best horror can be fun and dumb and visceral. You know, I, there's so many things that these films can do and stories that you can tell. And I feel like. You know, I love Happy Death Day, which I think is also like another great, like kind of scream esque. Uh, I love the
1: lead in Happy Death Day. She's so
3: funny. Yeah, she's great. It's like, and those are these fun things, you know. And and then there are other ones that just feel like, all right, well, you know, there's so many, there's so many. And I think, you know, I, I'm da- I'm down for all. I've even heard like escape room is fun. Like, you know, I think that the I think first you have one that,
1: is. I never yeah. saw the second one, but the first one is really clever. Like the setup, the set pieces are so inventive. Super yeah. inventive. I need to I see
3: mean, a that's why I used to love Final Destination movies. So they were like, great. It was like the Rube Goldberg horror movie where it was sort of like, how are these people going to die? And it was just sort of like, you didn't have to care about, you did care about the characters a little bit, I'm sure. But it was also just sort of like, fuck it. Like, it's just like, we're going to kill every one of them. And the, and the fun of this movie is, how do we create this insane death sequence? You know, and it was, <sighs> you know, and that's way, way more fun to me than like a movie like Saw.
1: Oh, yeah. Do you think Saw stole? Do you want to play a game from this movie?
3: Oh, I wonder. That's interesting. Wonder. And by the way, our super producer, uh, Josh, just told us that Final Destination 6 has been announced. Uh, I'm so, done.
1: I've only yeah. seen one of them, and it made me so scared of uh, garbage disposals.
3: Well, I'm actually excited about this because John Watts is going to produce it. That's awesome.
1: Okay. Well, you know, speaking of movies for kids, let's really about face to a frosty movie for children called Frozen.
3: Ooh, this is going to be interesting, Amy. Um, you know, I know how you feel about Disney movies, and I, I think we've maybe even gotten a little take on where you might fall in Frozen. So I'm I'm will, uh, I'm excited to see you watching it with uh, open eyes.
1: You know, I will. I'm going to rewatch it with open eyes and open heart. I saw it the first time, hated it. Years have gone by. It has stayed big. I should give it a second shot.
3: Um, well, we will do it, and you will take a little listen to this trailer for Frozen. Summer in the city of Arendelle. It couldn't be warmer. It couldn't be sunnier. But that's about
1: to change forever.
0: Arendelle.
4: It's completely frozen.
0: Cold, 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 cold,
4: cold, 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 A real howler in July. Yeah? The land is covered in eternal snow. <gasps> really? If we don't do something soon, we'll all freeze to death. You want to talk about a problem? I sell ice for a living.
2: Ooh, that's a rough business to be in right now. <laughs> I mean, that is really...
0: <clears throat> that's unfortunate. My lady. <laughs> whoa, whoa. <laughs> this is awkward. <laughs> Not you're awkward, but just because we're... I'm awkward. You're gorgeous. Wait, what?
4: Hi, everyone. I'm Olaf. <gasps> Hi, You're creepy.
0: Whoa. I don't want whoa, it. Whoa. No. All right. We got off to a bad start. I know how to stop this winter. Yeah.
2: Hang on. I like fast.
5: Whoa, 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 whoa. Get your feet down. This is fresh lacquer. Seriously, were you raised in a barn?
0: Ugh.
4: Let's go bring back summer. No. Man, am I out of shape. Wolves. Stop. Whoa. whoa. Are you okay? Uh, I've got a thick skull. I don't have a skull. Oh, Head rush. It's so cute. It's like a little unicorn. Now we just have to survive this blizzard! That's no blizzard! So Sorcery. That's my sister! That would have been nice to know. Head's
5: up! No. It is not nice to throw snow people! Whoa, 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 whoa uh, feisty I pants. Mean, just let the snowman be. I'm calm. Great. <laughs> oh, oh, come on! <laughs>
4: Oh! Oh! Olaf, you're melting. Some people are worth melting for. You're just moving alright right this second. Ah! 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 Come on, buddy, faster. Oh! No! Olaf! No! Oh! Oh! Hang in there, guys! Oh! I can't feel my legs. I can't feel my legs. <clears throat> Those are my legs. Oh, hey, do me a favor, grab my butt. <clears throat> oh that
3: feels better obviously frozen is available wherever wherever you want but primarily disney plus uh but uh check it out frozen um and i'm gonna go on the record right now and amy say to you frozen 2 is not as good as frozen 1 that's my hot take just to get into it frozen 2 is bad uh rushed it don't need to sequelize that story uh and they they really messed it up but uh anyway uh, I saw Frozen Four Kids in the theater, so I have not uh, watched it without cleaning dishes and doing a million other things in a long time uh, where my kids watch it. So uh, let's let's dive in next week. We'll see you next week. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right. Go to tpublic.com stores slash Unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled.
0: Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag and Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack.
2: Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat.